0: in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. Welcome to Rob Kane's Ancient Rome Refocus. (music) History for the Brave
1: Hello everybody. This is episode 9 of season 2. On the show we have Mark Schaus of the podcast... Russian Rulers History. Mark is a fan of Ancient Rome Refocus, by the way, and he hosts a dynamic podcast of his own that can be found on iTunes. Mark made the assertion that there are connections between the Russian Tsars and the Caesars, so I challenged him to come on the show. Stay with us to listen to this fascinating interview. The title of this podcast is Caesar, by any other name, is still a Caesar. Five times a month, they held court. He and his cousins lived in an abandoned villa outside the walls of Rome. He had been to Rome before, and was used to the opulence. He couldn't say the same for his cousins, though. Where they slept, the walls were intact, and the roof had no holes in it. This made them uncomfortable. For you see, these men lived with the stars over their heads, and more than once he heard them grabbing blankets and stomping through the halls to the stables to sleep with their mounts. At least there they could see the sky. He had lived in Rome as a child and was familiar with their ways. A goth in Roman's toga, a fat senator said to him once when he, Alaric refused his petition. He slapped the pig across the face. His cousins loved him for it, The Romans he courted and bribed, since buying his citizenship, shrank from him for months until he brought them out of their holes with favors, wine, and games. The old lady, the empire, did not have enough young men willing to defend her virginity. Goth mercenaries grew up fighting and were paid by the Romans to live on the edges of empire and keep the borders secure. Today, Alaric was known by a different name, Flavius Alaracus. It made the conquered happy to call him by his Roman name, his name that he used as a Roman general as Magister Militum. He had taken Corinth, Argos, and Sparta, after all, selling the inhabitants into slavery. A Christian by birth. He was responsible for ending a pagan ritual called the Elysium Mysteries. His men came upon the caves and small temples lit by the sacred fires. They grabbed whatever they could, for they were easy to see in their white robes. The priests and their supplicants all scattered into the groves. And his men rounded them up. They said they looked like ghosts. This act raised him up in the eyes of the church. He may be a barbarian, but he was our barbarian. Fine. Let the pasty-faced priests of the Savior think what they like. Alaric had attacked at the right time, the perfect moment, for the city was filled with those that had taken part in the possession of Elysius, and the fields were fat with supplicants. Alaric lined up the priests and demanded their sacred books, but there were none to be found. He demanded they tell him their secrets, and they happily went to the flame. He sold many into slavery, but ripped out their tongues to keep their precious mysteries silent forever. What did the priest yell to his fellows to keep them quiet? Any ear of corn is reaped in silence. This was obviously some Elysium truth, but somehow it seemed fitting. The corn shall keep its secrets, and so shall the followers of the Elysium Mysteries forever. When he entered the room, all the heads snapped in his direction. It didn't matter whether they were Roman or goth. He was the center of their universe. Now the Romans thought him uncouth, but he could speak their tongue fluently. Could they speak his? Doubtful. In the past, too many towns erupted in violence with goth-heavy legions that sat in the old Roman forts on the edge of many towns in the eastern frontier. Crowds would gather and erupt into violence, shouts, stones, and the men with the long mustaches, a tradition they refused to give up, marched out in their armor to bash a few skulls. Goth commanders and a few Roman ones would demand to the emperor more money, better bribes, and the mercenary troops were moved further and further west by order of the empire. After all, the west was old. Let the Goths cause trouble there as long as the eastern half remains quiet. A gaggle of dignitaries were led in by the slave secretary. Lately, it was hard to get them out of their villas. Men who were afraid to even stroll through their vineyards in case a Goth was picking olives off the branches of their private orchards. Four Roman senators, each of them carried petitions. Alaric was in control, and they carried demands. Such unmitigated gall! However, these men represented General Flavius Constantinus, who was hinting of a land-grant to Alaric, a place in the Garnomi Valley between Toulouse and Bordeaux. It was a bribe, of course, a favor in hopes that the goth pillaging of the city would go easy. Well, we did restrain ourselves, as much as possible, Alark thought. It was three glorious days and three glorious nights, all pretense gone, all decided by the passion of his men. For eighteen months previously, his army blockaded the city. Eighteen months they had to wait. And what they did to the city was like the aftermath of a glorious orgasm. Except nuns were not raped and churches were respected. Still, still, the troops had a good time. He would remember those nights with fondness for a long time to come. And why not? True, he was a Christian man, but his skin was still close enough to the barbarian cloth he wore upon his back. Before... They would simply pay him off. He was paid off many times. 4,000 pounds of gold were sent from Constantinople. 5,000 pounds of gold from Rome just to assure loyalty. Rome was like an old female widow. Pinch her, tickle her, and demand, and gold spews out. the dowager would shout until she wants something in return he had enough arguing with these men and their hired barbarian generals sometimes it was hard to tell them apart a background sometimes was revealed with a visicoth pronunciation of the word Rome itself many of the courtiers lived in two worlds Latium and their tribe he did so himself angling back and forth were it most benefited. Huns were feared, and the Huns were used to fight if needed. Visigoths were feared, and the Visigoths were used where needed. Play the tribes against each other, and Rome survives another day. Even the dramatic horde serving in the legions had felt the sting of Roman ingratitude. General Stilco, product of a Roman woman and vandal father, fell from power. This was a man trusted by Emperor Theodosius himself and the young Emperor Honorarius. The general was a half-breed that held the consulship twice. And upon his death, neighborhoods rose up and killed the defenseless wives and children of Germanian soldiers serving in the legions. And they call us barbarians... Many husbands deserted the far-flung legions to rush home in hopes to find their wives and children. Legionnaires were caught, strung up, crucified on all the roads leading back to Rome. Many died, but some made it back in time. And upon returning to their homes, found them destroyed, and nothing to prick their memories of what was and what could have been. The day before he took Rome, a thousand men volunteered for the rape of the city. They were brothers in the loss of wife and child. He noticed that these men fought the hardest and extracted a higher price from the neighborhoods that had taken part in the slaughter. Now Alaric did not have enough men to lay siege. So... The next best thing is to take the city by stealth. Weeks before, he had taken 300 clean-shaven youths from the tribe, 300 boys known for stealth and valor, and shared his plan with each. They would be handed over to the Romans as a present, as slaves. Each was told to be compliant, to be soft-spoken, to go out of their way, to please On the appointed hour, though, they would run from their master's house and attack the guards at the gate. Three hundred boys coming out of the dark with clubs and swords stolen from the Romans' master's house. It was a bold plan. Three hundred boys together in the dark, a tribe of purpose, a tribe of honor, and a secret mission, is what only every boy craves a nut days of fetching water and enduring unwanted caresses of ringlet hands would steel themselves for the attack in the dark. They came out of the dark screaming and overwhelmed the guards at the gate like a wave from the ocean. And once the door was raised, his army rammed through like a penis, heading home. As Alaric rode in, an old philosopher that lived near the gate shouted at him, "'It was an accusation enclosed in spit. "'What you reap is what you sow.' "'Yes, old man,' he shouted back "'as his horse rode through the Salarian Gate. "'And from Rome we shall reap much.' "'Those words echoed off the walls of the building "'and followed the failed philosopher Junicus Fleas "'into obscurity as he fled the city with the other refugees.' The singer of woven words, the Rapsidoi, will sing of the sack of Rome for many years. Already they sing and chant of Alarac in the sacred grove, listening to a woman's voice that sings out from on high. Break all delays, break all delays, through alpine cleft and Roman wall, take the city in the fall. Well, it took considerably longer than that. Stilco and his army stopped him at Palentia. It took a while to outmaneuver him. Three times, three times, he had to knock on the gates of Rome. He besieged the city, and the Romans coughed up another 5,000 pounds of gold, 4,000 tunics, 3,000 scarlet hides, and 3,000 pounds of pepper, a fortune. Break all delays, break all delays. Through alpine cleft and Roman wall. Take the city in the fall. The second time, he negotiated for titles. And for gold. You always negotiate for gold. It was just a matter of deciding who to go to. The emperor was safe behind his dikes in Ravinia. So, instead... He turned to the Senate in Rome to see what they would cough up, and upon blockading the city, they coughed up more gold. And something unusual. The right to set up his own emperor. So, he held a ceremony. Took musicians from the town, and marched the unsuspecting victim down the aisle as warriors threw flowers down upon his head. Quite a ceremony. The name of the new Emperor was Pricus Attalus. Chuckling could be heard from the warriors, for he was shaking with fear. His family watched from the sidelines, looking like he was about to be executed rather than made Emperor. There were so many lately. It only took eleven months for the Emperor to fall and break his neck. Interestingly enough, that was about the length of time it took for Alaric to keep his temper. Life is strange that way, don't you think? He went back to Honorarius, who held the treasury. The shit did not want to talk. The shit had no desire to talk. Others were whispering in his ear. Others were making him wait to dally, to hide behind his walls. In the meantime, Alaric wanted to be recognized. He wanted respect. What did the bishop say as Rome burned? Stop it. I mean it. It's not a joke. Silence! Shut your traps! I am the narrator. Be quiet! In one city, the whole world perished. There was a whole world out there hundreds of miles of plains, forests, and lakes. Millions never laid eyes on Rome, but they could count themselves fortunate for their small patch of the world. Alarak looked at the Roman representatives that stood before him. How is my wife, he asked. She had been taken in a battle. The goat nodded and sneered. Well taken care of. Is she for ransom? He asked in a manner that said it did not matter much to him if he got her back or not. A good negotiation is always done with the face of stone. What do you offer? The goat asked. Two bags of gold, he said. Three! countered the goat. Done! said Alaric, and motioned the gold to be paid by the treasury slave. It was their gold, anyway. The use of gold was not new. A few years before, Stilco sent him four thousand pounds of it, which were stripped from temples to prevent him from stepping foot in Italy. This bribe made the general Stilco unpopular and contributed to his fall. A decision by the weak-kneed Emperor Honorarius, declared his death. At first, the general sought sanctuary in the church, and while he was there protected, he found out that his men were willing to fight for him, to go down in battle for his honor, but he refused their service. There's nothing so foolish as a noble fool He was too Roman. He bought into this idea of Roman nobility and stepped from the church, dreaming of God and the good of the empire before being cut down. You find that funny, do you? I'm so glad I'm here to entertain. Stilco's will said this, that all properties and accountings Shall be settled for ransom. Well, Alaric's wife was a prize, and through flattery and threat to burn a section of the city, especially where one of the senators lived, he was able to get her back. His wife was brought in, followed by the children in chains, each of them following dutifully behind. Alaric stepped forward and, after kissing her lips, whispered, Which one? She knew the deeper meaning of the question. His wife looked slyly at the dark fellow with the large nose. That one, I bit his neck as proof. Alarak smiled and said, Welcome home, dearest. You and the children look well. We shall not discuss your absence again. We have been reunited, and that is all we can ask of God. Yes, his wife said. Thanks be to the Blessed Virgin Mary. We shall give to her what is due, but all I ask of you is to settle the accounts that we owe on earth. He nodded and kissed her on the cheek. The chains of the children were taken off their wrists, and they gathered around her skirts, and she put as much room as possible between her and her captors. It was now a question of space. She now wanted to enter the realm of her husband and out of the reach of the Romans that had held her in bondage. Once she got behind Alaric and out of the scent of the Romans, she spat at Big Nose, sending a glob of dribble right into his face. Alaric pointed at him, and two Visigoth guards grabbed the arms of her jailer. He stepped forward and inspected his neck, As he would inspect the neck of a chicken. Teeth marks. He killed him on the spot. Quickly, a knife in the belly. The three remaining Romans swore, and one screamed, and they held the hands of the others, thinking that this assassination was meant for them all. They shivered like old women. Alaric walked past each and then said, "'Unfinished business, gentlemen. Done. "'So we shall speak of it no more.' "'He's bleeding on my sandal!' one of them squeaked. Alaric looked down and simply said, "'Move your shoe.' "'The senator did. "'There! All better!' "'He then sat down on a chair facing the remaining three. "'Let us finish our business,' he said. "'You are here for a reason.' I see petitions clutched in your fat little hands. What do you request? You control the harbor town of Portus, the fat senator said. Rome is in need of food. The city fathers need permission for food and supplies to be transported from Portus to the city gates. Do you give permission? Alaric nodded. Two hundred wagons, no more. Two hundred boats may fill their holds as well. Each must be inspected by my men to make sure there are no soldiers secreted away. The fat senator was silent. His eyes looked like he expected more. Is there something else? Alaric asked. The remaining two of the delegation whispered in the third's ear. They looked like mice all white teeth and whiskers, with tiny secrets for tiny ears. The fat senator nodded to his companions. And softly pushed them away. He turned to Alaric and said, Flavius Alaracus, general, what is your intentions? What do you mean, he asked. He wanted to laugh. He had just pillaged the city. His intentions were clear enough. Flavius Alaracus, do you see where you sit? He had to stand up to take a look at it, for the design that they spoke of was on the back of his chair, for the chair he sat was gilded, it had red cloth and gold an eagle in gold with wings spread out taking to the air and underneath the eagle were the initials spqr for the senate and the people of rome translated into goth celt in the dramatic tongue the legs were the appendages of a lion down to the claws for feet there was a carving of Christ on the cross. In the sky a sun and silver sent its beams across the earth, with an angel flying through the sky to some unseen destination. The chair had belonged to an emperor. Which one mystified him? There were so many! Alaric now understood the fat Roman's concern. It was not a chair at all, but a throne. The Romans stepped forward to explain. This chair has been carved, added and adorned with holy symbols, as the chair aged and the empire grew old with it. The Julians, the Claudians, Hadrian, Hostilian, Valerian, all have sat there and dictated to the empire, the senator explained. What we need to know, does this chair now belong to you? Now Alaric knew why they came. It was not the sacking of their city that concerned them, but they wanted to know what he intended to do. He may hold Rome, but does he intend to wear the purple? Alaric moaned to himself, for at that moment there were too many emperors. Honorarius was hiding in Ravinia. "'holding court, pretending it did not matter that Rome was sacked. "'Theodosius was in Constantinople, "'and each of the emperors maneuvered around each other, "'snapping and holding an empire together in the western and eastern half. "'There were two others that thought themselves equal to the task "'and were quartered by Goth and Hun alike to see who had the fattest pocket. "'Power was in the name of emperor itself, "'but it needed to be backed up with soldiers.' And that could be anyone, goth, hun, or scythian if you could pick up a sword. Men switched sides on a monthly, even daily basis. Gold and silver changed hands, and power went with it. The empire was in flux, the old bitch. Alaric knew the vandals, Alans and the Suvi were on the move in Spain, and sixteen regiments of the Roman Empire did not challenge them did not even object. They stayed in their camps as the countryside was plundered about them. The world was being blasted by winds and no one was in control. Except, except the church. Villages burned and the church bent like a reed in the wind. The church always survived. Alaric's brother-in-law came forward. He whispered violently in his ear. Declare yourself. Declare yourself now. Call yourself Emperor Alaric. Take the throne. Take the line of emperors and make it your own. Take everything. Did not the voices come to you in the sacred grove? You are the greatest of chieftains. Alaric looked at his cousin with confusion. And what of Theodosius? What if he objects? His brother-in-law, Adolf Spat. He is in Constantinople, a world away. I've seen him, a short, pudgy man. You sound like you want to be emperor. Ratoff smiled. Give me a chance, and I will. You raised me, and know me. You know that my ambition is limitless. You have a chance here, a real chance, to change the world. What does it matter what the name is? Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, I've seen the schoolchildren recite the names to their tutors, Vitellius, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, all learned by route, their hands whacked with the tutor's cane, if not learned properly, if not put to memory, even I, Agoth, "'An ignorant fool know their names by heart. "'You have taken Rome. "'You have looted it. "'So why not an emperor named Alaric? "'Let the schoolchildren learn that name. "'Let that name be whacked into their small little brains.' "'Alaric shook his head. "'He knew that Atoll would gladly take his place. "'He knew that Atoll had been seduced "'by the trappings of the city, "'the tunics, the women.' and his eyes betrayed his longings. How could he not wonder what it was like to be emperor, for in some streets, statues of emperors clogged the alleyways, forcing residents to dump them in the Tiber, so one could simply go about one's business. He even caught his cousin once staring at the statue of Vespasian, taking on the stance, jutting his jaw outward, and copying the way the statue held his arms. His eyes went back and forth, trying to imitate how the Emperor stood, even the drape of the toga, except Atolf had only the use of a horse blanket to hang from his arm. Slowly and methodically, Atolf was becoming seduced. All Alaric had to do was sit down, Crown himself and claim it by right. Claim the emperorship by the right of battle. Did not other emperors do the same? In Ravinia was Emperor Honorarius. In Emperor Theodosius in his silver walls of Constantinople. Everyone wanted to be Caesar. Everyone. And Gantha, Italicus, Antia, Althea... What's in the name, Caesar or not? Tribal king, Wanox, a oh warrior king, a Caesar is a Caesar by one name or the other. Alaric kicked the chair and toppled it on the floor. We go to Africa, he shouted to the room. The long-moustached warriors shouted their delight. The clean-shaven Roman smiled, but quickly, like a tick, a brief grin that dropped below the surface. They did not want to be seen, enjoying the thought that Alaric would leave the city and leave them alone. We go to Africa, Alaric shouted again, and the warriors beat their shields in happiness. Africa, where the fruit is not held for ransom! The room roared with laughter. We go to Africa, we take what we can, and from there we control the trade routes. The Romans will have to come to us to sail their tiny ships. Adolf stepped forward and whispered violently. Please reconsider. You are leader. You could be Caesar. Put your face on a coin. Wear the sickening color of the purple you. Have the men find a sculpture and put your ugly face on the Jupiter statue. We are so close. Can you smell it? We stand inside the city. We can establish your own line. Your own imperial "'Line!' he gritted his teeth, his jaw tight, sweat upon his forehead. Alaric stared wide-eyed at his brother-in-law. "'You are with fever,' he said. "'You must rest.' Alaric turned to the room. "'Men! Warriors! There are too many Caesars! "'Pack up the treasure! Kick out your poles! Find ships and test the winds! "'We go to Africa!' The men shouted their delight. I hope... You enjoyed my little dramatic narration of a time near the end of empire. Alaric chose not to be a Caesar. So instead, he took his tribe and his spoils over to Africa. I just don't know what his motivations were. Maybe he was Caesar already, at least in his own tribe, and maybe that was just enough for him. Now, the annals tell us that he drowned, so in the traditions of his time they gave him a burial worthy of a king. They stopped the flow of the Besenthor River, they dammed it up, and they buried this warrior chieftain at the bottom. And then they broke the dam, allowing the river to flow over him. Alarak lost his chance to be emperor. But what about you? What if you wanted to start your own empire? Emperor James, Darko, Jordan, and William, any one of you guys, look to the Romans to get what you need. Niccolo Machiavelli looked to the Romans. He even wrote his own book, titled The Prince, which is a guide in maneuvering the trappings of power and how to rule. In Machiavelli's world, the gods are not involved in determining the outcome of politics. In Machiavelli's world, men are the same no matter what the time or age, and each person in Greek, Roman, medieval, Renaissance, and even today's modern man has the same passions that lead to the same decisions, acts, and results. The book, The Prince, exploits the lessons of history and politics to teach a prince how to rule. You might even say, how to rule as an inspiring emperor. If you want to start an empire, hey, here's your book. But it's nothing new. It was completed in 1517. The prince was based on his musings about the ancient world. Machiavelli's world was undergoing political anarchy. Thirty years of French excursions subjugated Italy, and kings and popes fought for possessions. Frankly, I don't think it's much different than the world of the Caesars, and I wonder if it's much different today. It is a book that gives you, the inspiring emperor, advice in what a prince should or should not do, such as, it is far better to be feared than loved. And you'll hear Caligula say the same thing, let them hate me as long as they fear me, Machiavelli's book, The Prince, has been criticized for its amorality, but this is a 15th century guidebook for princes on how to survive the present-day world of 15th century politics. His book are observations where he took from the classical past to present to the emperor of his age, Lorenzo de' Medici, a prince, that sometimes... A leader must caress, hurt, forgive, punish, benefit, suppress, and upon a policy chosen, wait for it, act. Machiavelli said, The common people are impressed by appearances. So to start an empire, you must make a connection with Rome, consciously or subconsciously, but this is something that you must do. Now, let's take a look at Napoleon Bonaparte. ...and how he is depicted to the French people. Paintings of the little colonel in his satin and purple robes. And the key word here is purple. You can't take a look at any of Paul Louis de Piede's paintings... ...and not say he saw himself as emperor painted in the Roman ilk. Napoleon is quoted as saying, "...I wish to found a European system, a European code of laws, a European judiciary there would be but one people in europe now let's take a look at napoleon's coat of arms the eagle is centered on the crest the eagle is associated with military victory and the day after coronation napoleon set the eagle at the top of every flagpole of every flag in his army In 1804, just imagine the English Parliament, imagine Wellington upon hearing the news of what now led the French legions, and I will make you a bet that they instantly knew his intentions, if they did not know it already. Symbols speak power, and Rome was on the march." let's look closer at napoleon's coat of arms look at the top of the crest to the right and the left of the crown charlemagne holds a scepter and you can see a hand the fingers formed in the sign of benediction Both symbols borrowed from the Holy Roman Empire, another symbol to set the psyche of Napoleon's new Europe, that he is now the continuation of what came before, and thus giving himself, Napoleon, legitimacy. Anyway, look at Napoleon's coronation. Check out the paintings of the period. Google it. Especially get a look at Jacques-Louis David's painting, which is now on display at the Louvre in Paris, it reeks of Roman influence. Check out the coronation medal that was struck with the profile of Napoleon, very Caesar-like, with the opposite side of Napoleon being brazed up on a shield, supported by what looks like a Roman senator and a representative of the military, very Roman-like as well. I will accept the argument, however, that maybe the time of emulating the Romans have passed, after all, great men in their efforts to be seen as egalitarian are not painted or photographed in Roman toga anymore. The psyche of the public would go like this that upon seeing Bill Gates dressed in a toga or Bill Clinton, they would think more toga party than the tenets and principles of the early republic. The idea of Roman influence passing could be true, but I doubt it. A toga, a mere garment, is one thing, but power is another. We are in the age of corporations, of companies that take in more funds, greater than some governments. The word emperor can now be replaced by CEO, I will take a bet that in some future time, maybe even now, a company can operate like a republic, like Microsoft with a benevolent first citizen named Bill Gates. In some instances a company may operate like an empire, like Apple with a dictatorial emperor with Steve Jobs at the helm. In some instances like a corrupt imperial governor intending to fleece the provinces like Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs and their money-making on money-making schemes which flatten our economy into its present state. And who can forget the worst spendthrift, who can only be compared to Caligula in all his glory, the company called Enron. In ancient times, up and down the coast of southern Italy, magnificent villas were on display and you can make comparisons of a new elite of Nero's who are building their own versions of golden palaces such as Gatsby Homes lining the Hampton Coast and the symbol of excess such as $45 million checking accounts and the Fifth Avenue New York duplex. It is not that they are successful. It is not that they have made all the right choices. It is that they think they deserve everything, and it is theirs by right. I am less cynical than you think. I believe that the Roman influence, the tenets of republican philosophy, have not simply converted into an economic corporate power structure. I believe the rise of Eastern European democracies spells the spirit of the early Roman Republic and that the early Roman Republic lives on in them. I believe that western influence and western ideals have touched the democracy movements of China. If the worst happens, and our society fell, and another dark age descended upon the earth, that somewhere on the plains of Kansas, or Colorado, or whatever territory or state that was able to lift the fog of darkness and light the fire of renaissance, a group of founding fathers will begin again with copies of the following, definitely the Bible, possibly the Federalist Papers, possibly a copy of the Constitution, more likely with a copy of the Republic by Plato, and definitely the writings of Cicero. Rome will live on. On the phone, we have Mark Schaus of Russian Rulers History Podcast. To find his podcast, you can go on iTunes, but you can also go to his blog at http: colon backslash backslash russianrulers.podhoster.com. Mark uh, is going to help us make some connections between the czars of Russia and the emperors of ancient Rome. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you,
2: Rob. I'm just real excited about it. Love your podcast.
1: How did you get interested in Russian history?
2: Well, it uh, started at birth. Uh, my uh, mother is uh, from Russian heritage, and she was uh, her family was part of the Russian nobility and the uh, admiralty of their navy, and they lived in St. Petersburg. I'm also Russian Orthodox by birth. And also... My parents were very interested in history, and they're both from Europe. Uh, They were born in Germany and Yugoslavia. And, you know, they instilled this interest in it. My dad, actually, his big interest was Roman history. That was one I kind of grew up listening to. And my brother was big into history, and he was 10 years older than me. And then, when I was in college, I came across one professor, uh, Dr. Paul Average, at Queens College. And he taught a class in Russian history, that everyone wanted to get into. I thought, wow, it's pretty popular, might as well get into it. And I became absolutely enamored with Russian history because of him. Took a full year of his courses. He was just so excited about teaching Russian history. He also taught classes in anarchism as well, which everybody wanted to take. And it was just this love that he had for it that got me interested in it. And I actually wanted to become a Russian history professor Unfortunately, he said my Russian was what they call kuchny ruski, which is kitchen Russian. I basically could order food, could get to the bathroom, get a glass of uh, water and a drink, and that was about it. He said academically, that's not going to work. So I went off and pursued other career. And then when podcasting became more available, I started looking into it. and, and I do another podcast on health, which is my, my field.
1: What is the name of the podcast?
2: Uh, that podcast is uh, called Let's Talk Real Health. It's been on iTunes as well. And, you know, I've been doing that for about four or five years. And I have about 4,000 subscribers to it. i been moderately successful. But last April, I said, you know, I said this to my wife. I said, Hillary, I really want to do something on Russian history. I need some time off. I work, you know, long hours and what I, what I do for my. Job and then she goes, okay. Well, why don't you go for it? Started looking at all the different books that I already had on Russian history, and I started it. And I thought, you know, if I get a few thousand people listening to this, I'll be happy. Well, I hit about sixty-five thousand subscribers as of this week. It has, you know, been wildly successful and real interesting. As I got deeper and deeper into these Russian czars and their rulers and the intrigues, that became. Just absolutely fascinating. And then the link to how they acted so much like Roman emperors of ancient times, that was another thing that I was excited about because I've listened to your podcast, as well as Mike
1: Duncan's on the history of Rome. Well, that brings up an interesting point. How were the Tsars similar to the Romans?
2: Well, first off, they were absolute rulers. Once we get into the time of uh, Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great, They become very much like the Russian I mean the Roman emperors. Their power was absolute, and the one who started it is the first person to use the term Tsar, which is derivative of Caesar, was Ivan the Third, also known as Ivan the Great. But the first Tsar to be called Caesar in his coronation was Ivan the Fourth, known to history as Ivan the Terrible, which is actually a misnomer. His name in Russian is Ivan Grozny, and Grozny means awesome and not terrible, and this was at a time for a battle, at the Battle of Kazan, where, you know, they said it was just such an awesome battle and how Ivan led his troops to victory, which is also not a historical fact, because Ivan was hiding hiding in his tent, uh, much like a lot of these, you know, the later Roman emperors, you know, who weren't out there in the battlefield, but, uh, And that's when they started with becoming more like a Tsar, you know, or a Caesar, like the Russian. you know, the Romans were. But the one who really starts it all
1: and really gets into it is Peter. Peter wasn't the first Tsar, was he? Do you consider him to be more like the first Augustus?
2: I would say he'd be more of the first Augustus, whereas Ivan consolidated power into the uh, to Moscow. And so that became the seat of power. It was Peter who came in and changed everything. He went through society and tore it up, put in new laws, similar to the Augustan changes. He really consolidated all the power into one person. But sorry, and that was to carry on until Nicholas II abdicated in 1917. So from about 1698 to 1917, you have this series series of different rulers who were called emperors and czars that really controlled every facet of life. There were the, you know, the boyars and the senate, very similar to the senate of Roman times, but more like the times, not like the republic where they actually had power. Here they were just people who were able to run the day-to-day affairs,
1: but the emperors were told them what to do. How do you describe the powers of the czar? You said absolute. When you say absolute, they could basically murder members of their own family? Well, some did. Peter I, uh, Peter the Great, murdered his son,
2: uh, had his son uh, Alexis murdered because he thought of him as being treasonous and trying to overthrow uh, his regime. There's a debate as to whether that was true or not. There was a lot of overthrows. Uh, we have Empress Elizabeth, who was the daughter of Peter the Great, she overthrew the government government of Ivan the Sixth, who was just a little boy, and had him ordered, you know, kept as a prisoner, with no one knowing who he was. And if he ever tried to escape, to have him killed. Catherine does have him killed. Catherine the Great. She overthrew her husband, Peter the Third, and had him murdered. Uh, we also have Emperor Paul gets overthrown and murdered. And his son Alexander takes over. So there's a lot of the same intrigues that happened with the Roman emperors, especially during that third century where you had all the different emperors being overthrown all the time. Big difference, though, it stayed in one family. The Tsars that ruled, you know, from the Augustus of, you know, Peter the Great all the way to Nicholas were one family, the Romanovs. That's a difference with the Roman emperors who seem to have. Uh, the general of the day, would take over.
1: Who did the Romanovs marry? Who did they bring into the family? Well, uh, a lot of them were in, in the Germans. Uh, they
2: married... Uh, Peter married what could be considered a, a handmaiden, uh, Catherine the I. Uh, she was from uh, Latvia. And then you have uh, Catherine the Great, who was from Ansulte, uh, Holstein, which is part of Prussia, as was her husband, uh, was Peter's grandson. He was also from Prussia as well. So they married a lot of the Prussian influence came into the uh, court of the Romanovs. Uh, Peter Third was the last of the male line of the Romanovs. From there, we start going into the female line, and most of them are Prussians.
1: Who do you consider to be the greatest czar? There's two that you could consider. One would be Peter the Great. He completely
2: tore that country apart and took him from being an Oriental-type mystical power uh, that was still somewhat under the influence of their past being controlled by the Mongols uh, and made him westernized. But he was able to only do that on a surface basis, basically changed the way people acted, made them shave their beards, changed the way they dressed, but the interior of their souls and how they behaved was still very oriental. You can look at Catherine. She completes the job that Peter does, and that, hence why she's also called Catherine the Great. Those two totally transformed Russia into what it is right now, a, a superpower, one with you know, a great history, and also it was an empire, very much like the Romans. Uh, we think of the Romans taking over different peoples and incorporating incorporating them into their you know lands but where russia does the very same thing they don't have a you know anything that's different with people they said it doesn't matter what you look like you can be part of the russian empire you can belong to us so they had so many different types of people joining in with them and they were all accepted as
1: russians very similar to all those peoples in the later times of the emperors were accepted to be romans did any of the czars study the Roman Empire? Oh,
2: oh, Ivan the Great, I mean, Ivan the Terrible, actually, was the one who really started looking into that. And he wanted to style himself like Caesar, like Augustus. And he did a lot of studying of the Russian, I mean, the Roman emperors. And so much so that he realized that in order for him to be legitimate in the eyes of his people, he had to have the hand down from the uh, Byzantine Empire, which he also felt came from the Roman Empire. So he married one of the uh, scions of the, the last emperors of uh, Byzantium, uh, Zoe Paleoloc. And that way, he felt that he now had that handoff, that hand that started with Romulus and Remus all the way through the Russian in the Roman Empire and the emperors, and now he was just the same as they were.
1: Did the Russians consider themselves part of the Holy Roman Empire no they actually thought the Holy Roman Empire was
2: uh, some of the emperors thought they were more you know just a kind of fakes that the Russians were the true you know scion of the Roman Empire not the uh, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor there's uh, some disdain for them uh, they didn't think very highly of them they thought of them if anything, that they were on par with the Russian Tsar, or, or maybe a little bit below them. But they
1: really felt that they were the true handoff of the Roman Empire. Where are you going next with your podcast? Tell us some of the facets of history you covered, and and where is the show going from here? Well, you know, we're going to just continue going on. Uh, we're right in the midst of Catherine the Great, and she's a
2: fascinating uh, historical figure because we have her memoirs have been handed down to us we know what she felt how she thought about things so it's a real rich time for us to describe and then we go to you know the, the succession of different Tsars all the way to the romanovs then we switch gears and become they're you know, going to the soviet period where we start looking at lenin stalin and i'm going to have to be very careful because my parents were staunch anti-communists So we don't want to, you know, put in any, you might call the flavoring on one side or the other, trying to really just show what history is doing, and then continue that on to the time of uh, Vladimir Putin, which is the present time. Uh, From there, I'm actually thinking of going into German history. And that's a fascinating one because it was such a, you know, split type. And there's one other one that I was kind of dabbling in, and that was the American Mafia. Because growing up in New York City, you heard a lot about the mob. And I actually had a roommate at one time whose father we think was in it. So it was kind of like a fascinating little bit. But Russian history, we've got probably another year to go on this one because it is pretty rich. And, and shortly I'm going to be doing a kind of a compilation of the first part of Russian history on my anniversary of the first podcast on April 30th.
1: Well, I'm going to be looking forward to it. Thanks for being on the show.
2: Well, thanks a lot. It's been a real joy doing it. and thanks to all the people out there who have been sending me messages. you know it makes it you know it makes it really worthwhile when you hear back from the people who are listening to your podcast and saying thank you for doing it.
1: I just have one more question. Do you see any comparisons between the Czars and modern leaders? In the 20th and 21st century, is there anybody in particular you can point out that seemed to have the traits of a Roman emperor or a czar? Who do you think? Yeah, one person in particular. It would be Joseph Stalin and the way he controlled things. It was. There's been a lot of uh, the histori- Russian historians who see great
2: correlations between Stalin and Peter the Great and a lot of his. Methods. I mean, he dragged his country, whether for right or for wrong, to a complete change in the way they did things. You know, him more so than than Lenin. Uh, So that's the one person I have to say. You can think of Mao and China being very similar. When we look at these emperors and we look at the Tsars, we see that they were not benign people who cared about, you know, the local uh, folk. Uh, When you look at Russian history, you have to understand that during the Romanov period, over 90% of the population were serfs, slaves. This was a slave economy. Uh, without the slaves until Alexander II freed them, you know, they were so agriculturally based, they basically couldn't have survived without. Very similar to the uh, Roman Empire, how many slaves they had in such a great proportion of their lives. And then you look at what uh, Stalin and Mao do, they basically enslaved the people. Do their bidding, so very similar with those type of people. Much different than what Hitler did, you know, in my opinion.
1: Thank you very much for coming on the show, Mark. And you're more than welcome to leave a guest editorial on the blog. Well, thanks. And was, this was a this was a pleasure. It was a long time in coming. I'm glad we could do it. In honor of you coming on the show, Mark, we're going to leave you with a little of Ivan Reprof singing uh, Moscow Nights. I like getting emails and I got quite a few this time out. I got one from Claude Banta he writes Rob, I just want to send you an email and say how much I enjoy your podcast. It's not a phone call as you requested on your blog but it's the next best thing considering I'm not into that there Facebook. Your last episode was captivating because it was ancient Rome applied to real life It explains who we are as Americans and where we came from. I think he's talking about Washington wears a toga. I should say my knowledge of Rome is greater than average, but I still enjoy your podcast. I like the humor and witty perspective that you bring. As far as a place I went to recently, I just got back from the History of Rome tour, All of you may be, uh, this is Rob, all of you may be um, familiar with a a famous podcast called The History of Rome by Mike Duncan. Uh, Banta writes, it's organized by your rival podcaster Mike Duncan. Uh, We went to Rome, Naples, Brindisi, and Istanbul, all in 10 days. It was a memorable tour that made tangible the things I was reading about. Not to mention the great times we had. I look forward to your Cleopatra episode, Claude. What Claude is referring to is that I've been working on an episode of Cleopatra. It's just that I'm approaching it from a controversial angle, and I've been having a little trouble with it. And I, in addition, I've been a little hesitant to put it on the air. That's still in the making, by the way. You know, I wrote back to him. I said, you know, Claude, thanks for your input. I very much envy your trip. It sounds great. A real adventure. I mean it. I listen to Mike Duncan myself and enjoy his show. What is he like? Question mark. You know, I ask him if he wants to call and write in and tell us something about his experiences. He wrote back. Rob. Mike is a knowledgeable, down-to-earth guy who's really friendly and great at organizing people. I feel sorry for him as his five weeks in Italy and Turkey are coming to an end today. He guided all three tours. The date on this, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, was uh, June 6th. I guess on your blog or podcast, you could welcome back the folks from the History of Rome Tour. No need to mention me by name, as I'm a low-key kind of guy. The Thor Tour, T-H-O-R, was memorable because it brought people from all over the world. U.S., United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, and Germany, if I remember them all. They all had common interests. The guides were great, and we got to explore places we never would have thought of on our own. One out-of-the-way place where we all had fun was the amphitheater at Capua. It's in the middle of nowhere, hours from Rome and Naples, with no other touristy place nearby. It doesn't look like much from the outside, but underground, it's a different story. It has pathways between the columns and rooms on the sides, illuminated by sunlight that trickles in from above, and that gives the ruins that peaceful garden look. We had the place all to ourselves, since it was so out of the way, I wish I were were a kid and could run around it all day. After coming from the town for lunch, we had around, oh, only about a half an hour to get back to the bus and head for Sorrento. We should have had at least two hours. I also had fun in Ostia, which was a ghost town like Pompeii, without the crowds or the blazing sun, and I had fun in Pompeii itself. I'm a fan of places with acres of Roman ruins to explore and buildings to poke my head into. What also made the tour enjoyable was the group dinners to socialize and drink Italian and Cappadocian wine. You know, here he mentions the episode on Cleopatra that I'm trying to put together. I never would have guessed an episode on Cleopatra could be so controversial. Hope you have fun with it. An episode on the Gracchi or the problems of the late Roman Republic. Now that would stir up controversy. Thank you, Claude. Here's a phone call that I got from William Glover. Mr. Glover has uh, 25 years' experience in archaeology and uh, was kind enough to uh, phone in. Let's listen to it. And uh, I got a few emails, so we'll review them when we get back.
0: Hi, Rob. This is about the 9th.
3: Father of our fathers, help me lead my men well. Do not let me dishonor my legion. Please help me regain my family's honor. Our new commander, Marcus Aquila. Fourth cohort of Gauls, second legion. Is this your first command, sir? It is. Ah! Ready? On my command. You knew who his father
0: was. The man who lost the Eagle of the Ninth. Not to mention 5,000 men. It is known that a detachment or vexillation was in 121 A.D. Its last record in Britain around York, which was its headquarters, was 108-109 A.D., although it is suggested that it was destroyed in 117-118 A.D., and may have prompted the the Hadrian to uh, build his wall. But it does appear as if it was in Arabia um, in the 140s, and may have been destroyed in the Jewish revolt in 132-36, in Cappadocia in 161, or on the Danube in 162. Uh, Marcus Aurelius' um, inscription of legions has the 9th, the 8th uh, Hispania, and the twen- uh, 22nd De Coriana are missing from this inscription, so they may have been destroyed during or um, after... Or prior to his reign. So um, that's part of what I have to say, but um, time marches on. I will talk to you later. Bye-bye.
1: Mr. Glover's comments has to do with the movie The Eagle, which was out in the movie houses a couple of months ago. If you don't have it playing near you, uh, it's probably gone by now. You could probably rent it out of your local Redbox or get it from Netflix is a bad omen you say the eagle's been seen in the far north no one can survive north of the
3: wall one man can hide when an army can't it's too risky then I'll take Esker he's a slave he does what he does because he has to I had everything you step for he will slit your throat the miniature alone let's open the gate soldier Are you ready? How can a piece of metal mean so much to you? The eagle is not a piece of metal. The eagle is Rome. No. Who has the eagle? He knows. He's one of them. You'll try my father's men like dogs. No. Your father came to kill. You're still my slave. No.
1: I got a short note from William Glover on the Ninth Legion. A detached unit was known to be in Germania Inferior in AD 121 at about the same time the Legion Vitrix 6th Legion, was transferred to Britain to replace the Ninth Legion or to reinforce? The data that marks the end of the Legion in Britain clocks in around AD 08 or 09. This may have come from the headquarters area in the area of York, but data exists that several high-ranking officers and the Legion were transferred east to Arabia around AD 142. And to make an already complex picture more difficult, it has been suggested that the Legion was destroyed in the Jewish Revolt that's around 132 to 136, or in Cappadocia in 161, or in a revolt on the Danube area in 162. What is clear is that this legion took a beating in many places around the empire and may have been merged with another as it and two other legions went missing, one being the 8th Hispania, which was in Britain at the same time as the Ninth, and has seemed to have shared the headquarters area around York. Now, as to the movie, which I have not seen yet, but I looked at a uh, movie website, the events seem to occur around AD 140, which is to recover the eagle of the Ninth Legion, which plays to the myth of the Lost Legion and the son who must recover it. So, was a large vexillation of the Ninth wiped out, from that a myth sprang. And if they were wiped out in 08 and 09, a son would be in his 30s and could have risen high enough in rank to pull this deed off if the traditional date of 117-118 is used. You begin to get into the real what-ifs of history. But that's the stuff of stories. And the beginning of myths, not history or archaeology. I have used stories to some advantage in archaeology, but that's with the greatest caution. And it only takes one inconvenient fact to bring down a well-crafted theory. And much of history and archaeology has been changed by the evidence in the ground yet uncovered. Still working on the eagle and its place and meaning to the Legion. Yours, William.
3: What's happening? Get on your knees!
1: you my slaves. Do as I did for you and I'll survive. do this now a professor Rivet who wrote the book Town and Country in Roman Britain published in 1958 was quoted as saying the following. One curious feature of Roman-British studies must be noted. There is a tendency, perhaps due to the intractable nature of evidence, to create myths. I got another email from the archaeologist William Glover. This is a quick note. On the use of the eagle in the legions... Goldsworthy reports in a discussion on Marius that he consolidated the five legionary standards, eagle, bull, horse, wolf, and boar, to the one familiar eagle made of silver. The change to gold may have occurred during the imperial period. Now, overall unit traditions and identity began to become complete, as prior to this legions were reformed and renumbered after major campaigns, or by the laying down of Imperium by the consul or proconsul. The loss of knowledge prior to the Second Punic War was constant and led to many of the reversals that Rome experienced, but as part of a larger essay on the change in organization and tactics, which others had done much better than I can, what I would add is that the influence of the second king of Rome, it shaped all aspects of classical Roman life, The army was no exception, and however hard it is to drop all your thinking about the internal organization of the Roman military for command and control, it was more of a problem for any commander in this world and learned the hard way the lesson of unity of command in a good set of sub-commanders, as well as the value of what we would now term the non-commissioned officer, NCO, with the ability to make a decision to exploit an opportunity during combat, combined with the aggressive nature of the motivated Miles who could turn the tide in a hard-fought battle. That's the end of his email.
4: Hi, my name is James Bretney. I'm calling from Venice, California. Do I have an issue with Angelina Jolie playing Cleopatra? No, I do not. Uh, I have a problem with anyone who tries to portray Cleopatra in a compelling way. That seems to be a challenge, um, Uh, The producers from the 1963 movie did it. Uh, The people in the 20 and the uh, Timothy Dalton movie did not do it, even though Dalton's performance is the best thing about that movie. Um, Do I have a favorite author I want to share with you? I tend to like uh, the Anthony Trollope book about Cicero. Um, Do I have an idea about a show? Yes, you should do a show about my movie, which is called Universal Empire. It is a story, it's a pilot, TV pilot that I am, uh, it's a presentation pilot that I am pitching to uh, to HBO. I'm taking it to the American film market this year. Um, if you'd like a copy of The Rough Cut, I can send it to you. Uh, you have my number. Uh, hopefully you have a great day. Bye. Oh, and by the way, the best exhibit at the local museum is at the Getty Villa. That's all. Bye.
1: That was James A. Brittany. You can find him on the Internet Movie Database. Uh, he's involved in the movie business. Yes, I would like to have him on the show and talk about his movie. The name of the movie that he's talking about is called The Story of Criticus, Uh Universal Empire. It has its own Facebook page. If you go to the page, you can get links to see uh, a trailer from the film.
0: Hello, Mr. Kane. I love the podcast, and I wanted to request a show on a battle. Um, I love the whole theatrical thing you're doing, and I think a show on a battle would be amazing. Thank you very much, and I'll keep listening.
1: I think that's a great suggestion. I'm a great fan of the Battle of Actium, but there might be a battle that you think is uh, more interesting and that you would like to see me portray in a dramatic narration, and give historical background as well, if there is one, I suggest you send an email to Rob at ancientrome refocus dot org Well, that concludes this episode of Ancient Rome Refocused. We will be back next time with an interview with Natalie Haynes, who wrote the book The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. The Times Literary Supplement called it a romp through some of the best known and some of the more obscure writers thought and stories of Greece and Rome. I interviewed her, and she had me laughing the entire time. She is an entertaining and interesting person, a classicist, and someone who thinks deep and connects it with modern times. I think you will enjoy it very much. So we'll talk to you soon, and see you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused.
0: History for the Brave